0: This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. In this special episode, we sit down with musicians and musicologists Naomi Gingold, Heather McLaughlin, Gavin Douglas, and Michael McSweeney to explore a broad spectrum of music in Burma. Well, welcome to uh, Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and we are here at a very special uh, series of editions uh, that are coming out from the Bourbon Mysteries Conference 2016. Uh, maybe we'll go around the room and have folks introduce themselves from the music, symbols, and symbols panel. Um, do you want to start, Naomi?
1: Uh, sure. My name is Naomi Gingold. Um, I'm an independent researcher as well as a journalist and music producer, audio engineer. Thanks. Hi,
2: I'm Heather McLaughlin, I'm Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology at the University of Dayton.
3: And I'm Gavin Douglas, Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro.
4: I'm Michael McSweeney, I'm a graduate student here at Northern Illinois University studying world music and uh, excited to be on this side of it this time. (laughs) Great,
0: thanks. Yeah, a lot of what uh, you like, if you do like the podcast, Michael's helped out from behind the scenes. so maybe we'll have, for those of us who weren't able to join, folks who tell a bit about uh, their paper, and then we can find connections and intersections. Gavin, do you want to start?
3: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I led off the, uh, the panel with the talk on um, Dhamma instruments. So by Dhamma, I mean uh, the teachings of the Buddha. In Theravada Buddhism, the, the Buddhism that's practiced in, uh, in Burma, there is a, a precept that requires monks and devout Buddhists to abstain from music, theater, dance, and, and perfume, actually, the text goes. Oh. <laughs> uh, all of these things that that cultivate attachment to the world. Okay. And I, in other studies, I've sort of explored what that actually means um, amongst the people that you know practice Buddhism and are musicians at the side. Um, but for this uh, project, for this presentation, I was really interested in Ritual sites or uh, uh, pagodas and monasteries that every time I visited them in Burma, they've been extremely noisy places um, with lots of bells and gongs and chants and. Whatnot. So on the one hand,
0: there's this technical prohibition, but on the other, right.
3: right. So these. So really, what I'm talking about in this presentation was a, a sort of soundscape study of uh, of this very densely acoustically rich environment that has bells going on, it's not technically music, it's not technically things that you're supposed to sit down and listen to and enjoy and whatnot. It's not even constructed as music in a formal, you know, piece construction sense. But these sounds have meanings, and so I would interview the gong makers that make them and how they do it and videotape them. I would talk to people that would purchase these gongs and bells, and they're usually doing it for donation purposes, um, making donations to the monasteries and whatnot. And then I'd also talk with the devout laity and the monks who would um, have comments to make on these sounds and how they sort of intersect with Buddhist philosophies on, you know, the way you're supposed to be thinking of the world, um, the way you're supposed to be um, thinking about your relationships with other people and listening to these sounds then becomes a facilitator of the meditation practice that you might be doing or whatnot. So yeah, I'm focusing on particular bells and and the way that they're helping us think about loving kindness, um, striking a bell as you make a donation and by striking it you are inviting other people to participate in your donation and and um, you know, earn the karmic merit that you're making with that donation and, and when I'm also listening to a bell I might be hearing other, some other people earning karmic merit because they've just struck the bell and by listening to that I'm invited to reflect on the joy and the success that they're having um, so these are sort of internec- intersecting with particular Buddhist concepts of metta, loving kindness and how do we cultivate that mind state of loving each other and mudita, this concept of sympathetic joy, and taking joy in somebody else's successes and somebody else's accomplishments, as somebody else's karmic merit, and that's a pretty tough thing to do. And <laughs> I think we all know that. And so, in this, you know, when monks are talking about these bells in the context of ritual giving, this is the way they talk with it, about it.
0: And it's, I found that pretty interesting. So. Yeah, thanks. Uh, let's. We'll talk more about that, Heather. You want to?
2: Yeah, uh, the paper that I gave uh, is excerpted from an article that I just published in a new journal called Metal Music Studies. So it's exciting for people like me Great and Gavin. Title, by the way. Yeah, um, that heavy metal is now uh, becoming a subdiscipline of music studies and being taken seriously by scholars. So uh, there's virtually no scholarly writing about heavy metal in Burma. And uh, I could not, you know, uh, claim to lay out any kind of definitive territory. But what I did do in this article was explore how journalists have been writing about heavy metal and trying to distinguish um, that there is more than one metal scene in Burma. That isn't often acknowledged by journalists. Um, the scene that they focus on is um, what they would describe as underground or um, independent metal scene so it has a very different uh, sound than uh, the people in the mainstream media who also or mainstream music industry in burma who also play heavy metal um but what the journalists are interested in is not so much the sound and uh, they never seem to reference the lyrics that are being sung or shouted <laughs> by these uh, burmese underground metal musicians um, rather they impose what i argued was that they impose their own um meta-narrative, this idea that's actually very popular in Western academia that um, almost every cultural phenomenon that we can analyze is some kind of resistance against some kind of oppression. And so this is what they tend to see this underground metal as. Is, um, and it's an easy uh, story for them to write. Of course, we know that uh, Burma was home to one of the world's notoriously repressive regimes for much of the 20th century. 20th and beginning of the 21st century. Um, and so it's a frame that's too easily and, and um, incorrectly
1: applied, I think.
0: Thanks. Um, all right, and, and finally,
1: yeah. um, By the way, I realized um, I, I didn't say who I work for when I introduced myself. That may be a good idea. Sure. So you maybe do. I should reintroduce myself. <laughs> Hi, my name is Naomi Gingold. I'm an independent researcher and a journalist. Um, until recently, I was working um, full-time as a freelancer for PRI and NPR in Asia, and more recently am at the NPR station in Phoenix. Um, I'm also a music producer and engineer.
0: We'll be uh, taking your critiques uh, later after the podcast.
1: <laughs> 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 Tell us about your paper. So, um, so I write about um, a lot about hip-hop, um, but this paper was really focused on um, politics because really I, I kind of look at um, the intersection of media, politics, and technology in Burma, um, kind of through the story of hip hop, and the, this specific paper is looking at how, because kind of it, what Heather talked about this meta narrative um, of Burma and how this um, Burma was home to one of the most repressive military dictatorships, there has been a tendency for academics and journalists to kind of focus on topics and stories centered around this, centered around this kind of explicit politics, so like the politics of the military government the negative fallout in society from that, from the military government, as well as um, resistance to them, um, but kind of resistance as readily understood as resistance through our own Western lens of what resistance might look like. Um, so, and it's been a, a little bit of a problem because just focusing on what I, I refer to in shorthand as the politics of the state has had um, an adverse effect on the literature on Burma. Um, because topics that are on the surface that haven't seemed political, that are political, if maybe if you scratch the surface a little bit, but they've kind of been overlooked um, and in some cases misrepresented. Um, so, and I think a big part of that reason is because we bring with us um, our own understanding of what politics is and what it should look like and what resistance even should look like. Um, and so I kind of go on an ethnographic journey to explore, well, what does politics actually mean in Burma? Because it turns out that there are pretty big distinctions between the way that Burmese used um, and define politics than people from abroad do. And it has to do a lot with the extended years of military rule. Um, And so I guess I kind of bring it around to say, to show that kind of exploring these local differences, the differences between meanings, um, kind of opens up a lot. Um, And is really important for any analysis that you do uh, in Burma, or really anywhere, um, it's just really important and I think it's really important for us to like look at our own assumptions of how we approach things um, because we bring our own definitions and our own understandings of things to places, and that's fine as long as we kind of make sure that we also don't privilege that over what we're hearing necessarily from the people we talk to and study
0: One obvious intersection that, uh, that for sure, uh, Heather and yours, and, and, and maybe, I don't know, Gavin, but certainly the, the, this idea of reading, reading politics, reading resistance into, in, in your case, hip hop, um, but uh, metal or, or, or punk, like, tell us how, how you see that getting, how it plays out actually in Burma, how it gets misrepresented, misunderstood outside of Burma or by those reporting on Burma, what, how does that function?
2: Well, I'll start. Um, Again, heavy metal studies is a fairly young discipline, so um, I'm sure we'll develop many more theories, but uh, so far we have what's called the Weinstein hypothesis. So Dina Weinstein is a senior scholar uh, who has been writing on metal since the 90s, and her hypothesis is that heavy metal, uh, wherever we see it around the world, is the music of young men who are marginalized from the mainstream Economics and politics of their society. So that would be true in England, that would be true in America, that would be true in former Soviet states, that would be true in Southeast Asia. Um, And there are some ethnographic writings, uh, particularly actually about heavy metal in Asia, that contest this hypothesis. Uh, So, particularly in Nepal. As well as in Vietnam, and then uh, shockingly, the the, the Western
0: universal West hold elsewhere equally, of (laughs) course.
2: What what does hold, as it seems from the literature and the research that's been done so far, is um, what we might call the uh, the the most easily accessible parts of the tradition. So the sounds and the looks, right? So metalheads, fans, and participants in heavy metal around the world, they tend to look the same and their, their music tends to sound the same, right? So that we can say is, um, it's a hard cultural form, uh, as one other uh, scholar had called it. That seems to be consistent. However, it's There's an aesthetic that it's recognized as. Absolutely.
0: Metal. Al- although absolutely. The it's,
3: it's worth noting that the sound actually requires a lot of money to make. You yes. know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what the equipment—the ne- equipment necessary to make Just a good metal volume, sound. Yeah, yeah. Volume and you need electricity, yeah, which is a big right. thing in Burma. Yeah. You need you need guitars and you also need a lot of time to practice because this is a virtuosic tradition that's that's right. actually takes a lot of time to work up.
2: And so I argued, not in my paper, but in this article that I recently published, that the Burma case contests this hypothesis that so far, based on my limited um, understanding of it to date, it is uh, the music of people, middle class young people or upper middle class young people who in fact have access to more money than the average Burmese person um, and more access to quote unquote Western culture, uh, which takes money.
1: I think it's interesting um, to note the relation, to the ratio between the number of articles published about punk music in Burma and the number of punk musicians in Burma, versus the number of articles, this. versus the number of articles published on heavy metal musicians in Burma there's versus like the eight, actual... Eight Vice
0: articles about Burma. Like half of them are about punk music.
1: And, and the number of articles um. published about hip-hop and how popular hip-hop is in Burma. And it's a combined of a totally inverse relationship.
3: But there's even fewer fewer about traditional
1: music. Oh, <laughs> right. for sure. Um, I mean, I, I would just say that, like, for example, I think in the underground scene in the independent rock scene in Burma, I would say that really, like, heavy metal is, like, the dominant, um, what you see, like, the most. Um, and I... And, yeah, people are definitely in, like, all the... Concerts that I would go to because the underground hip hop scenes and the underground punk and metal scenes are kind of very close now. They didn't used to be. They didn't start out that way. There used to be a lot of arguments, um, but um, so I used to uh, hang out at a lot of concerts and um, yeah, definitely on the wealthier side. When it comes to hip hop, to answering your question, um, it was about what exactly is political or how is it?
0: Yeah, I mean, is is because of course hip hop can and in it, in its. In other spaces, like the North America, it can be political. It also isn't all the time.
1: So um, I really argue that. I think this is very true. I think so. um, I think the entire institution of hip hop in Burma is political. It came out of um, a bunch of, basically, kids. And they were wealthier, right? Because they had to be wealthier to have what access. What years are we talking about? So we're talking, so hip-hop really started in Burma in, like, the mid-'90s. And the first kind of unofficial mixtape came out in 1998 hmm. called Samachibu, which is, like, in slang, was, like, un, like I got beef. Um, <laughs> and those on that tape were the artists who then, like, kind of broke out in 2000 and be like officially and became like the first big hip hop stars in Burma. Um, but like that first album, for example, when they submitted it to the censorship authorities, they rejected the entire thing. It wasn't yeah. even like one word or one lyric, the entire thing was the rejected. Idea. And it's partly because like the kids who came up and wanted hip hop, like they saw, um, this is like a really long conversation. I'll try to shorten it. Um, they just saw kind of hip hop, hip hop as the antidote to what they saw was, um, what they didn't like in the rest of the popular music world. Like the the kind of lyrics about love they didn't feel like had a meaning so just there are just a lot of I guess I'll just sum it up to say that there were a lot they were you know in some ways they were fighting against their parents and they were fighting against the rest of the music world who kind of didn't take them seriously and didn't like them and then the military system didn't really like the hip-hop kids everybody kind of viewed them as just rude Um, and they were kind of fighting to be like no we're artists we're creating art um, but they were bringing in these like ideals. So they, they didn't
0: lean into the rudeness, like hey, we. we that's-
1: well, they did, but in very subtle ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like they wanted to make hip hop, and part of hip hop is is talking about truth and reality. And things like that, which is like was taboo in Burma, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you had a split in some ways. You had some kids who were more, who were like, okay, we'll kind of go along more with the military line. And those were like the commercial artists, what we call sell out to in the US and also in Burma. They were just selling out to both the commercial industry and the military. And then you had the kids who kind of really stayed with like the socially conscious stuff. It just wasn't apparent because like little things that they would do, um, like, slang, if they were talking about parties, like getting drunk, like they weren't allowed to do that, even that kind of thing. So like, all of it kind of became politicized. And even the people who weren't trying to be like posterly conscious rappers, um, they got in trouble for the clothing they would wear. They weren't allowed to be on TV. Um, so just so much of the entire culture of the whole thing was very inconsistent, let's say, and kind of pushing back on military boundaries of what was OK. And in the end, um, they really changed those boundaries. Because today, hip hop is huge in Burma.
2: So. It's also worth pointing out that, um, as scholars, and most of the people who work in Burma studies sadly are not Burmese, in other words not insiders but people who come from European countries and the United States. Um, but of course so we come as outsiders and we see what we see And it's um, easy to see in the military era the military right and the uh, control that they have over the government. What was fascinating to me after I had been there for some time looking at more mainstream pop musicians was all the musical activity that happened outside of the censorship system and there's quite a lot. So it's important always to remember that people have agency, and this is true even in the most repressive um, contexts. that individuals and groups of individuals will exercise choices that are seemingly forbidden if all you uh, acknowledge is the official government discourse.
3: Yeah, but the official government discourse was very loud, though, and the fact that anything... Western, in fact, anything international was um, suspicious so by just by virtue of that, any foreign musics, including classical musics in some contexts, mm. could become political and could be read as political depending on how you 're doing it so it 's not specifically hip hop or heavy metal or anything else. everything is going to have. At least some element of being read as political and potentially subversive, so it needs a little bit more scrutiny.
0: Religious music, if I can call it that, is something that you and Heather for sure have written about um, and, and thought about. Uh, whether it's whether it's Christian or whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's Buddhist, how how would you describe the the kind of the lay of the land for? Is, is is quote unquote religious music uh something that's consumed widely in Burma by by, by lay people? Is uh, it uh well in, in my talk
3: um I think I make a point about um you know a lot of religious music is well I wasn't explicitly talking about music, religious yeah. music and, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of it is yeah. a lot of the interesting sounds are not yeah. explicitly music. One thing that didn't come up today is the fact that so much of the pop music industry in Burma, um, there's a inordinate amount of ethnic minorities and Christian communities in there, which is another layer of highly politicized, you know, organization of people because Buddhism is the dominant sort of representation of Burma, and here we have all sorts of hip hop and pop and music that is produced and recorded and disseminated by Christian groups, which is...
2: And people who are often affiliated with ethnic groups, who are affiliated with um, insurgent armies, who have contested (laughs) the central state, right? So just to say, like, I am Karen, or I am Kachin, or I am Chin, or something like that, um, is... It might be somewhat similar to saying that I am... I'm a minority
0: other, I'm a religious other, and I'm also performing... Right. Yeah. It, yeah,
3: what layer of politics, what mm-hmm. layer of political are we actually talking about here? The word political at this point starts to mean a gazillion different things and becomes yeah. a useless term because right. it's very different to politicize yourself in a gendered way or in a religious way or in an ethnic minority way or in a. Yeah.
1: And because of the the word political and politics was so dangerous, and that's kind of what I was talking about in my paper today, people won't self identify that way. Even if they're doing something that they might recognize as political, or might not recognize, so.
2: And of course, this is not restricted to Burma or to Southeast Asia. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, Eric, that I'm studying the LGBT uh, choral movement here in North America, and it's amazing how, among native English speakers, p- white middle-class people, so middle these are overseas people, Burmese, or, nope, or these are nope. these are just okay. These are white Americans. Okay. This is a different community, um, and you know they belong to these choirs that have these mission statements that they you know quote to me that mm-hmm. say you know we're all about changing the world and that kind of thing right and then i ask them and just the word political itself seems to be a hot button thing and often my informants will back away and say, well, but we're not that kind of political, you know. Um, They used to say out loud and proud, but we don't have to be loud anymore and (laughs) these kind of things. (laughs) So it's interesting how that English word um, seems to be a sensitive word in many contexts, but as Naomi's pointing out, especially in Burma, for local and historic reasons.
4: Kind of going back, um, Kevin, what you were talking about, you are talking about music that is sometimes... um, it's more for ambiance. it's not um, actually purposed as music it's not explicitly music um, and then when you mentioned that in your talk today, the first thing that I thought about was um, in Muslim culture, the music in Muslim culture is not is the same way it's not uh explicitly purposed as music in fact, most people you ask most of them they're going to say that's that's not music it's part of our it's part of our religious ritual okay. you know um and then you went heather you went on to um make a comment about that when you were talking, um, about the Syrian refugees saying that music is a luxury. Um, and that same question popped back up in my head. I thought, well, what about for them specifically, what about religious music? So, um, with that in mind, I'm just curious what the two of you think. Um, and like I said, Naomi, I have a follow-up question on this for you. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what the two of you think about, um, what, especially like when you were talking about the, remind me, I'm sorry, the name of, um, Triangle the, oh, the gong, the GZ. Yeah, the GZ, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, like that, you, you know, you're, is that something that you think is, is purposed as music, or is that more ritually based, or how would you describe that?
3: Well, I, d- I do think this term music, this English language term music, is a clunky term to move around the world, yeah. because different people think of it differently. And Western society thinks of it in a multitude of... Mul- Contradictory ways, you mm. know. Getting a music degree means that you're studying some music and not others. You're going to see a right. concert means you're going to listen to some music and not others. So, it's 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 an increasingly uh, frustrating term <laughs> to use when you're look, thinking about the peripheries of what people do with sound to each other, to the gods, to um, you know, to their friends and family. Um, Yeah, there's definitely parallels with uh, the Islamic tradition that has um, a little bit more emphatic divisions between what counts as music and what doesn't, um, and sort of hinges on sort of religious behavior, Quranic chant, and the call to prayer, sound like music, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a lot of musical properties to them, Um, but in that in that tradition or those multiple traditions, it's really about sort of religious behavior and the ability that music has or the power that music has to sort of stray us and distract us from certain things. And, you know, there's really not any major religious tradition in the world that doesn't have something strong to say about music and the power of music to get inside of us and Mm -hmm. make us associate with the wrong people or do the wrong things or, um, and really, in the in the Buddhist context, yes, there's some parallels, but you know the the difference is all in the details, the interesting stuff in In the Buddhist context, it's very much about you know how does understanding pain and suffering in the world connect to the way we understand our attachments and the way we understand our relationships to um, the things that hold us to the world, which are also ultimately the things that bring us the most pain, mm-hmm. right. And it's in those sort of ways that that music in some ways can be these things that that are very earth-mundane, holding us, um, that can lead to problems and that it it leads to sort of building up egos and building up um, uh, unhealthy ways of thinking, Um, but also sound we won't call it music now, but sound can also be a way to sort of think about, uh, there are other ways to think about these relationships. So. Yeah.
2: I was just going to say um, that Christians don't quibble so much about the definition of music, but what kinds of music are acceptable. right? I, so I was mm. growing up in the 1980s in Canada, and I vividly remember um, lots of um, very strong discourse from more conservative Christian elements about Like if you play the Led Zeppelin record backwards, it's satanic, you know this kind of thing, and therefore, or drums in the church,
0: right? Right.
2: (laughs) And and we've now gotten to this in lots of protestant churches where they have separate services that they'll call they call them different things seeker service or whatever but what they really mean is that the sermon is the same the teachings are the same but the music is rather different so there's going to be one service where you have like an organ and a choir and there's going to be another service where you have a rock band for lack of a better word Um, so I was interested when I started going to Burma it was 2005 and so I asked a few Christian people, because as Gavin mentioned, there are many Christians in the popular music industry, if they'd had that same kind of debate around what kind of music is acceptable. And a couple of people said, oh yeah, I remember that, and preacher so-and-so said that we shouldn't be involved in a certain kind of music. But it seemed that by the time I started to pay attention, those debates were over. And Christians uh, who are uh, from Burma and now also, you can observe this here in the American Midwest, where there are many uh, refugees from Burma. They, um, as you know, part of their church youth group, say, um, participate in all kinds of music, like very heavy rock, would be one example, as well as like church choir, um, sort of country pop. All of those kinds of sounds seem to be so equally and Burmese acceptable. Burmese are
0: willing to play different genres and not see themselves as just a, you know, rock musician. They'll play.
2: Yes. So. Uh, Here I'm referring to professional musicians, not church musicians in the Midwest, but professionals back in Burma. Um, again, from the mainstream industry, they have been generalists historically. So they have understood themselves to be playing many different genres. And this is a point of pride. I play reggae, I play country, I play rock, I play this, I play that. Um, And there has been some outsider critique of that. Like, really? Because you don't sound all that different when you play your heavy metal versus when you play your middle-of-the-road rock versus when you play your country song. Um, Gavin is smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that that is how they have understood themselves but it has been interesting to me in my experience in the christian community there hasn't been prohibitions on certain uh popular contemporary sounds among uh burmese um, christians
3: In and, and in the the buddhist context in in burma there's more there are communities of lay buddhists that write songs That write songs about Buddhism um, that are somewhat controversial Um, and when you ask monks and of course most of the population is very close with the monks and many of them have been monks in the past so um, the monks are not high up on the hill they're part of the community Um, but traditionally Burmese um, Buddhism has not allowed for music to be an offering which is um, common in the Theravada tradition for music not to be part of rituals, music not to be ex- an acceptable offering. Um, in the Mahayana tradition, that's very popular you, in Tibet and in China. You can make a musical offering to deities or whatnot, um, and that's great. Well, here in in the Theravada tradition and in Burma, we have a a rich tradition of making offerings, and so there's certainly a lot of musicians in Burma today who think, well, these are my talents. Why can't I, as a good Buddhist, contribute my musical talents to the temple? And I've seen some negotiations, some interesting conversations with composers and monks who are trying to sort of push this envelope because they're they're now aware of what Tibetan Buddhists are doing. They're now aware of what Chinese Buddhists are doing, and they're sort of realizing, well, ours is the more conservative Buddhism, but... Um, I'm a professional musician, and I'm also a devout Buddhist, and in my older years I want to write songs about this, and I want to have them performed at the temple, and I need the sanction of the monks in order to do that, and these are sort of interesting dynamics going on in the country right now.
1: Um, There are a couple things that I wanted to add, Uh, also, you know, hip-hop really grew up and kind of an antagonistic relationship with the rest of the music industry. So, and also, you know, from, to make a hip hop song, you really need a computer. You need to make beats. Right. So, when we talk about like, you know, the popular, the general musicians in the popular music world doing everything, the one thing I would say they really didn't do was hip hop. Yes, it was a very kind of different um, group of people who kind of brought that up, and like there was a lot of antagonism between the different um, groups. They also didn't see them as real musicians. You're like, oh, you're using computer music. What's that? Um, and, you know, I mean, it's interesting, the very first person who became the first hip-hop beat producer is really just the kid that everybody knew who had a computer.
0: Right.
1: Um, and mm-hmm. the, the other thing I guess I was going to say is that I think underground um, metal musicians, mm-hmm. I think, are pretty strict about playing metal. I don't think they're yes. they're pretty into that. I don't think they would be like, no, I'm going to go play like a nice pop song now.
2: Yeah. yeah, and in fact, this is one way that they really distinguish themselves. Maybe punk it. punk kids, too. If they yes, we perform only that. We specialize in this one genre that we value as um, important above all others, and that's all we play, and we're proud of that. If
0: you're going to have long hair like Gavin, you've got to. Yeah, you know, right? got to you gotta, <laughs> you <gotta> live it. <laughs> <laughs> Well maybe we should do some plugs. Um, tell us, uh, tell us, things you're working on. Where you want us to find more out about what you're doing?
3: Ah, well, you can certainly visit my website connected to the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I've written a, a number of things over the last 10, 15 years on music and politics, music and ethnicity. Um, wrote a book on uh, music of mainland Southeast Asia um, through Oxford that that talks about some of these issues in Burma, but also through um, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam, sort of the whole mainland area. And right now I'm working on a book on uh, or what might become a book on sort of music, sound, power, um, essentially over the last 30 years in Burma that's tying together a lot of these things that we've just been talking about.
2: Um, I would like to plug Gavin's book, uh, Ma- "Music of in Southeast Asia. <laughs> oh, that's a love fest in here. For all the teachers yeah. that are listening to this uh, podcast, I teach his textbook. Um, it's excellent, and my students and I uh, really appreciate that book. Um, I would like to plug also my own book. It has a very easy-to-remember title. It's Burma's Pop Music Industry. Sorry, it's Burma's Popular Music Industry. <laughs> um, and so the subtitle is Creators censors, and distributors. And so I'm trying to look at not only musicians who create music, but also the people who disseminate it um, and the whole system for doing so, as well as the people who attempt uh, to restrict it, the censors. So the book is based on field research that was conducted between 2007 and 2009 before Burma's democratic transition.
4: Thanks.
1: Um, So this is Naomi and I, I'm currently writing a book about Burmese hip hop, um, how it started how it happened, and the story kind of brings in a lot of the history of technology, how did technology come to Burma. Um, so it's, it's a story about hip-hop, but it's really also like a lens onto the evolution of technology, politics, media, youth, culture, and kind of agency um, and power in Burma. And, um, and I work as a journalist. Um, oh, and I, I guess I'd, I'd say I uh, published an article for the... I did an article for The Economist on hip-hop and what is political... Um, in relation to hip hop, um, that came out at the end of May. Um, you can find, um, I've done some radio stories related to, um, Burmese hip hop. Uh, I, in my regular journalism life do a lot of, um, other kinds of reporting. So, um, you can find me on Twitter at Naomi Gingold, um, or my website, NaomiGingold.com or occasionally on your airwaves. Thanks.
0: And since this is a... Kind of a music cast. I, I want to plug our own, our Thai conference coming up. There's an incredible thing that's happening, um, which is uh, a collaboration, and, and Michael's part of it. On the we has, NIU has a renowned steel band. It's one of the places where you can really study it outside of Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, there's a collaboration between Thai musicians and uh, the steel band. Oh, very cool! To create this incredible, and I was yeah. I was there when michael and the others were performing the f- i guarantee you've never heard anything like this because it does calypso thai calypso um it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> and uh so keep your keep your ears uh tuned for that that's uh that'll be coming up and um at our thai conference uh, in, in november
1: cool
2: thank you so much for inviting yeah. us
0: thank you yeah thank you everyone thank you. <laughs> Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for producing this episode. More information about the music can be found in the episode description.